Thank you, Dan Hare, for joining my podcast. Uh, I'm super excited to have you. Um, and more importantly, it's good to see your face again. We've been friends for a long time now. And uh, I feel like because of COVID, I haven't had the opportunity to see all my friends. This is Rebranding Cannabis. I'm your host, Jared Mursky, and you're listening to the show that helps the industry grow. Hear from industry titans, thought leaders, and the up-and-coming founders of this multi-billion dollar industry. Presented by Wick and Mortar. Yeah, so welcome. And uh, Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Of course, brother. Yeah, and more importantly, I'm excited for my followers, fans, and friends to get a chance to know who... Uh, Dan Harris, not Dan Herrera, Dan Herrera. Most people have a misconception of how to pronounce his last name. Um, but uh, without further ado, welcome. Glad to be here. So many, many of you have, may have heard of uh, Jack Herrera, uh, the famous strain, but there is much more to this strain name than meets the eye. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that Jack is actually a person. He's your dad, and he comes with uh, an amazing, amazing story. And so what I want to do is talk a little bit about that and then kind of move into some other cool stuff. So, um, Dan, uh, first, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've got going on, and, and let's kind of move into um, the story. Well, uh, my name's Dan, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and really it's just, you know, I'm, I'm the son of Jack Harrow. Um, as as a family growing up in uh, the late 60s and early 70s, uh, my my father discovered cannabis in 1969 uh, at the age of 30, and uh, it quickly changed his life and ours. And when I say ours, I mean this family, but this family extends to pretty much anybody in cannabis at the moment. Uh, that uh, whether they knew of my father or know of the genetic that is uh, that carries his name, um, the influences uh, and his activism has changed the landscape in, in, in which we all are now trying to navigate. And, and his, uh, his introduction to cannabis and his understanding and, and his self-taught nature um, uh, really help to give people uh, an opportunity to to not just solidify their belief in cannabis but you know his educating of the cannabis community uh, gave us all uh, an opportunity to find our voices and, and change um, you know the, how we had access uh, in this country in our individual states and and uh, part of that uh, is is how I grew up. You know, instead of going on camping trips with my dad uh, as a teenager or as a young adult, you know, we were out collecting signatures for, you know, cannabis legalization since the time, you know, I was legally old enough to, to collect a signature at 18 in 1980. And, uh, you know, but, but we had been uh, his his support system uh, since he discovered cannabis and himself. And, you know, we went through making uh, paraphernalia and owning, uh, you know, um, 
you know, pipe shops or head shops in the in the 1970s and 80s, and uh, you know that that went on to um, my father um, releasing a book in 1985 that that really uh, accelerated the understanding and the need to uh, reinvigorate this plant as uh, something that was um, you know cultivated. Uh, hopefully legally uh, moving forward, even though we're still sort of, you know, finding our way through what this now paid access is to what hopefully legalization will truly look like in the future. And your dad, he was, he was all part of the long game. Like I read that he knew by putting this on the ballot that he wouldn't win, but continued to do it relentlessly in an effort to ensue a, much larger community around the legalization of cannabis. And so like, I thought that was pretty cool to learn about. Well, I, I think, you know, in 1972 with the first proposition that, that was on a ballot since prohibition, uh, which was prop 19 during the niche, the Nixon administration. And uh, it got 39% of the vote in 1972, which was surprisingly large considering uh, you know, still the, the, the large scale ignorance of, of both uh, Americans and uh, even the cannabis community at that time. You know, we, we had a belief that cannabis shouldn't be illegal because we knew it wasn't harmful. But past that, the narrative of, you know, uh, of. Well, let's go back a bit. Your dad put <laughs> your dad. Your dad wrote a book. Yes. Um, the emperor wears no clothes. Right, but that would be go actually going forward a bit. Nineteen. Well, but 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 you have to start at the beginning, which is like how and why uh, you know cannabis hemp, right? Was was legal? Well, I wouldn't say legal because it wasn't really recognized as a well drug at the time, but it was recognized hemp as a as a as a tool to manufacture um, you know products and and well, let's and understand this. Cannabis has had always been, for the most part, legal around the globe. Mm -hmm. um, whether you call it cannabis or whether you call it hemp, uh, it is the same plant. And cannabis, uh, as as a product that served man, uh, literally started tens of thousands of years ago. It's depicted in the hieroglyphics uh, in in our pyramids. Uh, it goes throughout Chinese and Japanese and 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 African. Uh, you know, uh, education. Uh, it was, it was, you know, the the true engine that created uh, international uh, trade because it was the hemp sails that powered these ships that moved around the globe, circumnavigating uh, the ability to deliver spices and cannabis uh, to regions uh, far and wide. When it was so popular, then that correct me if I'm wrong. During that time, they named cities and towns that had hemp in the name. Well, here in the United States, because, you know, now you're talking, you know, from the 1400s, yep. you know, after the, you know, uh, Columbus came here and the development of, of you know, the colonies settling here uh, in, in what would become the United States, that hemp was a most um, necessary crop. And, you know, as, as the uh, colonies grew, um, you had to, um, if, you know, during times of war uh, or, or need, 
that it was mandatory that you would grow cannabis uh, for this country and, you know, or for these colonies and you could pay your taxes with cannabis, you know, so, you know, uh, you know, cause it made everything from like the clothing that I'm wearing. It made uh, all of our bed sheets. It made our curtains, our carpets, the, the, the coverings for uh, our furniture. It made uh, the oil that greased the wheels of our wagons. It made gunpowder. It made food. Uh, and, you know, uh, quite honestly, it, it gave us an opportunity, um, especially uh, during the time that we seceded uh, from, from England, uh, it gave us the independence mm-hmm. uh, in 1776. It gave us the ability to print our own newspaper. It gave us the ability to create our own dry goods. It, it gave us the ability to stand apart and, and independent uh, as a nation. And it was truly one of the major, most important building blocks of this country. So while we're kind of back in time, <laughs> uh, there was a moment during prohibition that they actually allowed hemp to become um, legally used um, commercial product, product yeah. uh, because they, they, they were going to war and, and they now all of a sudden needed hemp to produce uh, rope and things of that nature in relation to, you know, battle time. So like, yeah, the, the let's talk a little effort. about that, that, cause that, that to me is a little baffling simply because well, it shows the hypocrisy of this country. Um, and let, let's, let's go back just a little bit and describe virtually everything in this country up until the early 1900s, including the medicines that we took, uh, our clothing and all of these, all of these products that we used had always been, you know, hemp had always been a, pro, a, a part of that. Uh, in the early 1900s, uh, it was said by the U.S. Department of Ag that paper would no longer be made from trees because hemp would make four times the amount of paper per acre than, than, than four acres of trees. Mm-hmm. And so there was this plant that had all of this great potential to create, uh, you know, industry and jobs and wealth. Uh, the only thing is, is that it became uh, competitive to those who were seeking to use uh, this newfound product called oil and the petrochemical industry and its processes and products that came from it. And in 1937, uh, you know, between uh, its competition with these other goods that were becoming the services of, of demand uh, here in the United States and the world uh, at large, uh, cannabis started becoming demonized through the newspapers uh, through a, a, a time called reefer madness. <laughs> and through that depiction, uh, cannabis was made illegal in under two minutes uh, at our state's capital, you know, I mean, at our nation's capital. Um, it, was made, it was made illegal um, because I, I believe, my father believes, and the, and the, and the information that we, um, you know, uh, had uncovered through research uh, shows that it was the most disruptive technology uh, known to mankind and all of the future companies uh, that were making anything from uh, you know synthetics uh, would all be dramatically uh, diminished as far as their profits to their shareholders if cannabis hemp was was embraced to its full utility and in 1937 the you know hemp or cannabis, Tax Act uh, was was created and 
with the stroke of a pen and a few votes, cannabis was made illegal. What they didn't understand was just how important this plant was. And when World War II started, uh, the, the realization that all of the goods that an army would need in order to survive, you know, winters, summers, uh, all of all of their ropes and riggings and 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 materials that would be needed uh, for boots or rope for, uh, you know, rigging for, um, Sales. you know, yep. you know, parachutes and yep. backpacks and belts, and, you know, uh, that all of these things uh, were connected to hemp, but. We made hemp illegal. So what you know, uh, you know, in uh, in um, the Philippines, the Japanese were already there, so they cut off any you know uh, substitute products like jute and sisal and things like that that we were buying from other countries because we weren't producing our own hemp anymore because it was made illegal. And then the government realized that they were going to enter the war, and if they were going to succeed at all that they would need cannabis in order to help win the war. So the United States Department of Agriculture made a propaganda film for the U.S. Department of Defense, and they called it Hemp for Victory. And what it did is it it encouraged, uh, you know, 4-H clubs and farmers and and those who were patriotic, uh, you know, to grow cannabis for the war effort, you know, because it was the only way that we were going to save the world, uh, you know, from communism and the Germans and, you know, all, all of the subversion that would come from that. And so the government legalized hemp. They started uh, encouraging farmers to grow tens of thousands of acres. Um, products were made. This 14-minute film was the first time since and the last time mm-hmm. that the government actually almost told the truth about <laughs> cannabis. You know, because even in their 14-minute video, they still put a couple of barbs in there of, but be careful, you know, like there was something to fear from this plant that had been God-given to us uh, as humanity and, uh, uh, you know, from from a planetary, you know, uh, aspect. This is a very important plant, and mankind depends on it, uh, just just like everything else. Now, now there was an individual in particular who, he was originally ahead of like um railroad um you're talking about harry anslinger harry anslinger yes harry anslinger he was he ran kind of the railway uh what would you call that uh, well what what he did was he was one of the he was the, the the guy who ran uh the program against alcohol prohibition so he was the enforcer of alcohol prohibition and then they made when him alcohol prohibition ended what do you do? You have this thing that's set up and there's nothing else to do. So what do you do? You create a new enemy. Well, and they know? did that though for a very specific reason. And that's to your point, you know, they wanted to, it's all politics, obviously, well, but they wanted to see, time. well, yeah, they so, wanted to see probably a lot of, um, a lot of these like supporters who own paper mills and things of that nature, you know, thrive. And they knew that if hemp came into play, um, in full force, much like it had in the early 1900s, that these companies would be gone. Well, uh, that that is um, there are some truth to that, um, but the it was the way in which they did it. It was it was how they portrayed it uh, in in the public domain that um, that this was something to be feared and it is something that was dangerous and. 
Uh, a lot of it was based in racism, whether it was against uh, Mexicans or whether it was against, uh, you know, blacks or musicians or, you know, anybody who believed in, in or, or used this product that, that suddenly, you know, if you smoked cannabis, that suddenly you would feel equal to the white man. And that if you could, if you looked a, a white person in the eye uh, as a consumer of cannabis, somehow now you are, you know, uh, an agitator uh, and and somebody that that needed to be, uh, you know, uh, controlled. Right. And so they used racism uh, in order to mask uh, a, a large uh, part of the war at the time through the, through the newspapers and rags, uh, which was really led by, uh, you know, a large, uh, uh, I, I should say a small group of people who had a large uh, interest in, in making cannabis illegal. One of those people was, was William Randolph Hearst. Uh, another one of those people uh, was, was the Scripps family out of San Diego and, and their newspaper publishing. Uh, and so, there was why wouldn't they all just get into the business why wouldn't they just go well shit clearly hemp makes us more money than paper let's just evolve with the times and and then i guess like my other follow up was like why the fuck did they after then later legalizing it after they then realized well shit this i need this like this is more important now than ever why didn't they just continue to keep that going rather than prohibit it again well william randolph first um, had one of the largest land holdings, personal land holdings in the United States. And a lot of that was timber farming. So if you have a newspaper and your timber makes your newspapers and hemp doesn't, then you already have this economic, you know, solution to your problem. You know, you can sell your trees to the, to the, you know, to the paper companies and then you can take that paper from them and sell your newspapers and you get to make money twice. But if all of your trees are just being used for basic construction, now your personal land holdings deflates your overall net worth. Um, you know, and if you're also tied into uh, the DuPonts um, who had the, the sulfuric acid process that created paper and, and you, you, put out to your shareholders that paper making would possibly be as much as 50% of all future revenue and that 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 process was to use trees in order to create paper then you have a you have a petrochemical you know company uh, making a process that's patented that they were going to derive their 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 profits from and that wouldn't be necessary if hemp were used yeah so but you know, so that just becomes the snowball of of different companies. Because if you if you look at today and every aspect of how we live as Americans or and or just being a human on this planet, from you know packaged goods to our automobiles to our clothing to whatever it is that that we use in our daily lives, the things that we don't even think about, you know, the computers that we're talking on the plastic housings that, that encase them, you know, the taillights on our cars, the dashes in our cars, the, you know, the, the fuel in our vehicles, you know, the, you know, everything that we touch from, you know, from, from the books that we have, uh, you know, to, to paintings on the wall. Um, all of these things are made with goods that are not hemp anymore. 
And so when you start talking about using hemp to its full utility, you talk about an extraordinary amount of, of businesses and industries that would have to change uh, not necessarily all their machinery, but their ideology and, and, and what it is that we are making and why it is that we are making these things. How long do you think it would take to create that transition now where we're at, given what we know and what laws stand today? Well, I think it, I think it would take longer than, than we would like, but uh, the first steps have already been taken. Um, Mercedes-Benz and BMW are already making car parts with industrial hemp. Um, there are pl- there are companies that are moving to biodegradable uh, plastic, um, you know, development of hemp. Um, clothing companies, you know, uh, lotions, all of these things, shampoos, all of these things are currently making. But the scale in which we need from a global standpoint uh, is very large. And my guess is it would probably take you know, 20 to 50 years to get where we should be. And, and the problem, the thing is, is, you know, 30 years ago, my father was screaming at the top of his lungs that, you know, uh, you know, he, he believed that hemp was going to save the world. Um, and he, and he, and he basically said, uh, you know, hemp could save the world, you know, and, and it's the only thing it, that can. And he, and he wasn't sure that it could save the world because he never, he was never sure that mankind would understand how important it was to embrace this plant at that moment, sort of like global warming. Now, you know, we keep thinking that we can keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And then, and then all of a sudden, Oh, we're at the last moment here. Let's change our position. My dad was screaming about this 30 years ago saying, you know, this is our opportunity to, to, to not just be able to survive in a future, but to thrive in it. And uh, he wrote a book called the emperor wears no clothes. And it was, it was the first time that um, on paper in a book that was documented and had research behind it that couldn't be disproved. And it was the first time that all of the things that we believed in as cannabis users and consumers and growers, it was the first time uh, since, you know, prohibition and this war on, on cannabis and humanity um, that here were real answers. Here was, here was something that said, I'm not telling you to smoke cannabis. I'm not telling you to grow cannabis, but here's the truth. Here's all of the things and all of the countries and all of the products and all of its uses and every one of them benefits mankind from now to eternity. And we should be using these to the best of our ability um, with all the technology that we have and that, that we would develop because, you know, as, as we start developing things, even with the computer, you know, it starts off one place and it ends up somewhere else. Now it ends up in the palm of my hand where before it used to take an entire building. So the technologies that comes from being able to do something with something and, you know, like, you know, a lot of industries in the United States, all of the infrastructure wasn't all created by the industries themselves. Most of these industries, a lot of these industries are supported by the government to help, you know, they see an idea and they go, you know, we're going to move toward this technology. So we're going to invest in businesses that develop that technology. But in cannabis, that hasn't happened yet because it's still so disruptive by being able to embrace this plant with, you know, uh, with, 
the full intent and power of a government disrupts all of the companies that currently support the government's ideas in order to secure their holdings and their place in, in this commercial market and the development of everything from energy to paper. And by, by switching that right now changes the dynamics of how companies profit and how, how, how they are, you know, it's, it's more about, profiting as a corporation than, you know, looking at, you know, planetary survival. And we haven't gotten to the point where, you know, we've been forced to really look at that hard with, you know, within our souls. Like right now, even, even with COVID-19, whether you believe in it or don't believe in it, whether it's real or not real, the, the, the effect that what happens when you change how we live, the disruption uh, that we go through as individuals and societies to make a choice. If you were to say, let's make a choice to, to switch from fossil fuels to hemp, how painful would that be during that transition when you know we're, we're so used to in this new era of having instant gratification and instant change and like one day I'm wearing a pair of sandals and next day I'm wearing futuristic tennis shoes that cost $800. You know, they're, like they're finding out that aliens are real and right. they're the ones that started human race and that God doesn't really exist. I'm just hypothetical, right? Yeah, but, I understand. but imagine how disruptive that would be right because and, there's all of these like and and yes that's where we are today you know yeah. today you know we can barely stay home to save our own lives if you know if this covid thing is truly the demon that it is we're so consumed with what about me and what about the things that i want to do that we can't even stay secure for a couple of months uh to to save our own souls so how how do we find the strength to save this planet when it comes right down to it. You know, I don't know that answer anymore. You know, I used to, I used to think that, you know, that we would just get there because of, of necessity, but well, that's now, all politics. I mean, we just but, need to put a person in place that yeah. has great leadership skills to begin with, but and, that's and I'm, not, I'm not sure where that comes from at this point, <laughs> you know, but, but the reality is, is that outside of our leadership, we are still the voice of the future. You know, we elect the politicians that represent us. So we still have power. And it's, 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 our, it's, it's our futures that's on the line here. And so it's our voices that are going to demand uh, the changes that need to happen. But the, the question is, is do we have that within ourselves? Do we have that strength anymore? Or are we just going to give up and go, ah, I'm going to be here for another 20 years or another 50 years, or maybe my kids will go through it, that, you know. But if you look at how fucking hard shit is right now, just because of this one COVID thing, we're not even talking global warming yet. We're not even talking 115, 120 degree days. We're not even talking not being able to go and buy water at a store. What happens when all of that shit goes awry? What happens when you can't buy water? What happens when all of the food is, is, is contaminated? What happens with all of these things when we really have to make choices? And we go like, damn, man, you know, people have been talking about this for years. My father was one of them. And, and this was just on cannabis. And there's the whole world of change that needs to happen. But his book, his book, The Emperor, has changed the space that we're operating in today. You know, the things that we're trying to do, the, the way that we're trying to live our lives, the way that we're trying to 
uh, create understanding and and community and happiness and connectivity with you know like so how, what are like dan what are what are some ways that people can get more involved in the war against hemp um, and and what are some resources that you can recommend for those that are listening and watching to perhaps dig into so that they can become um, more aware of what's going on and, and how they can help? A lot of it comes down to first and foremost is education. You know, educate yourself so you know what you're speaking about. Um, find groups that, that, that speak to you, that, that, can, that connect you, not from, hey, this is a great commodity and I can make money from it, Think about this the way that it's always been. You know, cannabis is a community. The cannabis community is, is large. And when I was growing up, uh, the community was, you know, Humboldt County or the San Fernando Valley. You know, because uh, every place else, it was so demonized that, I mean, even though that there was consumption here and there, when, when I was talking about community as a kid, this was my community, the San Fernando Valley that my father brought me to. Mm-hmm. Now this community is not just statewide it's just not you know across the border into oregon or or washington or colorado it's it's the entire united states it's the entire globe it's it's now you know uh you know the 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 middle east it's southeast asia it's it's africa it's south america it's you know it's we are a global community now and the way to find out what to do and how to do starts with educating yourself and then finding the groups that, that speak that language. Now let's, and, let's talk about like cannabis and like it, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I'm, no, no. You got, you've got me so excited. So let's talk about like the origin of, of cannabis and, and hemp and, and how it all came to be because um, you know, the, the male plant was meant to fertilize the, the female plant, but when they realized that by separating, you know, the male from the female uh, they were able to produce uh, much more pollen in the female plant. And, and when they recognized that, that was when they realized that by segregating the plants, um, you had one that was then, you know, built for hemp and another it was built for potency, so to speak, and experience and euphorium, euphor- euphorium, euphorium, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then you had ruderalis, which was a plant that then grew faster than, what was it, the, 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 the kind of the larger plants, um, and so then they started breeding that, that like, I don't know the full story, but I'm hoping that you'll shed some light on it because, uh, that to me is really fascinating. And I think a lot of people just don't know the lineage and origin of cannabis. They think that everything is, you know, an indica dominant or sativa dominant now that most have identified that everything's uh, pretty much a hybrid of, yeah, of, there's, of something at this point. And there's no way to, to determine the potency in relation to, oh, this is 70% sativa, 30% indica. You can't, there's no way to show that. Like, well, show uh, me I'm science that shows that. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a, a high-tech grower. Um, but what I do understand is, is that, uh, you know, anything, just like humanity, um, we all evolve. And cannabis has been one of those things. Um, as we understand ourselves, we're able to, to achieve new things and greater ideas and, better, and, 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 and enlighten ourselves by, um, you know, thinking differently and, 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 and producing uh, n- 
you know, new understandings of life. And I think a lot of that is what's happened with, with cannabis is that, you know, it started off uh, as, as this plant. And it's, I, I think that there's, you know, there's still some plants around the globe that are pretty much unadulterated, but as, as we like what, like which ones? <laughs> like if, if you find something that's just growing out in nature, you know, a thousand miles from anything else that, you know, that where there's been no farming of, of industrial cannabis for hundreds of years or even like an poca gold, like something well, like yeah. that. You know, I honestly, now a, a lot of things, a lot of cannabis has come to other countries through shipping over the last 500 years. Right. But, when, when you start looking at how it is that we found out, you know, that you could, you could take the pollen from the male plant uh, away from the female plant and the, and the female plant uh, would start producing more THC and more other, uh, you know, molecules uh, at, at a higher level if it wasn't, um, if it wasn't mated with, with this, you okay. know, pollen. Yep. And that if you if you starve the female uh that you can create this other type of of experience through this plant so as as a developing you know as the developing mind and the understanding that if these things are separate that that there's ways to create a different product and and i and i think that that's you know i think that's just a natural curiosity of of humanity and and i think you know, especially over the last, you know, 40 years of people that I've known that have, that have been, you know, very uh, educated growers that, you know, they've figured out ways that, you know, they can uh, excite a plant in different ways, whether it's in color or, or specific molecule production. And, and these, I think, are just natural progressions uh, in, in this plant, you know, uh, the same way that, you know, if we develop from, you know, these more uh, crude versions of, of, of humans and to, to the humans that we are today, that we, we have a greater capacity to understand and think and calculate um, that we're no different than, than the cannabis plant. And that, I kind of feel bad for the female cannabis plant, though, because when the male's taken away, they become the most sexually frustrated plant, which is why they then produce so much THC or pollen. But, yeah. you know, I think it's, you know, I think it makes them uh, even more um, beautiful, uh, you know, that they, I love cannabis. I just, I love it. I love the way it looks. I love, you know, um, I, I love everything about it. You know, the way that it feels when I'm touching it, when it's, when it's in the greenhouse or in the indoor grow and, and I, I can connect with it. it it's, it's a wonderful experience as, as a human to the senses, you know, whether it's visually or whether it's, you know, through uh, smell or, or ingestion, mm-hmm. it is, it is just a remarkable plant. And, you know, if you, if you want to, you know, if none of those plants, no female plant could become what it is without the pollen of the, of the male plant. And, mm-hmm. you know, as, as, as the male pollen is introduced and crossed with a female of a certain type, then it becomes then hybridized as it's, as it continues to grow. And, and I think it's, it, I, I think the creation of new, um, uh, 
you know, genetics, you know, through this, you know, process is, has really uh, created, you know, from a consumer standpoint, something very, you know, great. Um, Let's talk about uh, that. Let's talk about genetics because, <laughs> you know, your dad, his na- he was named after a strain. Well, the strain, the, the genetic was named after him. I mean, you know, the, the strain was named, <laughs> I'm sorry, I was just, I get dyslexic when I start smoking weed, which is also pretty fun because um, it gives me excuses. Uh, but you're, there was a, a strain named after your father. Yes. Um, and that's, that's pretty cool because it's also one of the most popular strains on the planet. And it it's often the icebreaker or rather teaser to what people then later find out about your dad. Yeah, and many of them knew of my father uh, and still do, um, and and not so much the genetic that was that carries his name. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, um, I I do my best uh, through, you know, uh, my cannabis company uh, to do both, and you know where where there's been you know many companies that have been created. Um, I think, you know, what my father uh, left for for this family was something that just became, you know. And I wish I would have met him before he passed. He was, he, was, um, he was very intense and very loving, and uh, he 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 was um, he was somebody that was good to know, and not somebody that was good to cross. <laughs> Uh, and so, so for me, as when when we sell, you know, when when we sell our product, um, you know, we love the packaging. By the way, we we make sure that we introduce my father to that person uh, who's asking for Jack Herrer because uh, if you're looking for if you're looking for something like this, um, and you, you know, you should you should buy what that is connected to him and this family. Yeah. And so we created the original Jack Harrow brand. And, you know, because there's only one Jack Harrow, there's many people that would, that would like to claim that name. Um, and many try to, and, and right now uh, are, but what makes your Jack Harrow strain different than everyone else's? Well, the reality is, is that this strain truly represents my father. This 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 brand represents the ideas of my father. It represents the fight that he and so many others had gone through for forty years, you know, fifty years, you know, risking life and limb literally uh, to grow cannabis. And did he lose uh, a limb? <laughs> no, that's that's the cannabis talk in there. Oh, okay, uh, <laughs> but. Um, but the, the, the realization is, is that this brand represents the things that my father taught me. And this brand represents the ideas that he instilled in me that this plant was, was, was one that should be uh, enjoyed by all mankind, not just ones that can afford it if they go into a dispensary that, you know, it should be, you know, reasonably priced. It should represent uh, the ideas of what activism is 
and, and what it is that we still need in order to continue to change the access laws that we have. Because right now, there's, there's no true legalization in cannabis uh, anywhere in the world, I, w- I, would, I would say. You know, we, we have legal access here in California. You have legal access, uh, uh, you know, in Seattle. In, in Seattle. But, but it, legal is, is not always the term that's really appropriate. We, we really have what is paid access. You know, um, the local municipalities might believe that uh, they can stand apart from the federal government and say, okay, we're making our own rules that we could have access to this plant. <coughs> but as, uh, as society, we're, we're, we're looking at this um, f- from a very skewed lens. You know, we still, uh, we still operate in the cannabis industry as something to be feared. And we have to deal with these, with these access laws that have been put in place that govern our ability to produce a product. And everything, you know, whether you're in Seattle or whether you're here in California, everything that we do on a daily basis is still um, uh, conflicted and compounded in difficulties because the same laws that govern us uh, are, are the same ideas, uh, in, in a sense, that created prohibition. The same fears of, oh, watch out, this is dangerous, it needs to be protected, it needs to be controlled, you know. But, but that's not really the, the reality of, of cannabis or, or mm-hmm. industrial hemp. You know, when, when you go into a Walgreens or a Walmart or a Rite Aid or whatever drugstore you go into, you walk in there with your kids. You, you know, you're a parent, you've just come from the doctors, you're going to get a prescription filled, you walk up there, you're pushing a stroller, you got your daughter's hand in your, in your hand, and you walk up to the pharmacist and you're like, here's my prescription, and they walk right behind this unsecured facility, you know, it's usually, you know, I mean, there's no armed guards, and they go back to the most dangerous controlled substances known to mankind, and there's no fear at all. It's like they walk up, you know, anywhere, I'm going to go over here and grab some ice cream, I'm going to go over there, grab some sodas and some beers. And, and that's I'm branding and marketing and, for you. And, and, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the pharmacy, sure. and I'm going to go get my Vicodin or my, you know, whatever, uh, you know, it's, it's just extraordinary to me that pharma has, has created the lack of fear with products that are so dangerous and the instilling of fear in cannabis where they would say, oh, you need your cannabis? Then you have to go to this dispensary over there behind those locked doors, behind, you know, uh, you know where, you, where you have a security guard with a gun, uh, where every every employee that works there has to go in, gets checked out, gets checked in. Every door that's open, they know who's on the other side of that door. Every cash register has a video on it. And that every, every delivery that comes to that uh, adds an era of, of, of risk and, and danger because of the narrative that's created for us to have access to this plant that's never killed anyone. And you know what's crazy now? Dude, it's crazy. Uh, a buddy of mine has a brand, and and he was talking to his friend. He wanted to launch a cig- cigarette brand. And mm-hmm. this is through a company that we work with called Pineworks. They have a, another brand called Tree Rolls. And um, uh, so, anyways, long story short, they they were approached to create this tobacco brand. But he's, you know, 
Pineworks like, ah, we don't recommend doing that. And like, oh, we really want to do this. And so they challenged the, the, the guys that had come to them. They said, you know, go smoke a cigarette outside on Venice Beach and see how people react and, and then see how people react when you smoke weed. Yep. And come back and tell me what people say. People were far more accepting of yeah. cannabis than they were of cigarettes. In fact, cigarettes are just becoming a really unhealthy thing. Um, more and more people are obviously moving to vape products. That's no surprise, but it's also because the smell of tobacco is just disgusting and no one really wants to be around it, which is also why you don't see people smoking in planes anymore and in restaurants and in movie theaters um, and in apartments. Uh, however, I can't wait till uh, you know, we're allowed to smoke in our apartment buildings. I still think it's a bit of bullshit that you can, you know, you can smoke, uh, uh, well, at least in Washington state, you know, you can't smoke weed in public. Um, you, if you own a home, so basically if you own a home, you can smoke in your house. Yeah, but yeah. other than that, you can't smoke weed anywhere else yeah. uh, because your apartment complexes, they don't want it. Nope. You know, that's against the rules. Same with cigarettes, but even weed, if cigarettes isn't. So then you can't smoke outside, you know? Uh, so well, and again, this all, this, all comes to, this all comes down to fear and misunderstanding. And I'm, 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 I'm going to you know, make a comparison here, and I hope it translates well. So the narrative that we have with cannabis, right? In 2015, uh, here in California, we had the very first access regulations that allowed those who were sick and in need of medication to, to buy and consume cannabis without fear. It was called Prop 215, mm -hmm. and it was the Compassionate Care Act. Dennis Perone was a part of Dennis that. Perone, Dennis Perone wrote that. My father supported it. My father put down full legalization that year. He had, an, he had a, 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 a proposition that was going to be in conflict with, with Dennis. And Dennis and my father uh, communicated back and forth, and Dennis convinced my father to not look for full cannabis legalization at then. And, and, and really look at, you know, allowing people uh, to have access to this plant and, and then take the next steps for full legalization. And my father was like, okay. And he, my, my dad put down uh, his petition, which was called CCHI at the time. And uh, he jumped on uh, with, with Dennis. And, and the thing was, is in 1996, it was, we, didn't, we didn't pass it because of fear. We passed 215 because of love we we passed it because Tell everyone what Dennis Perone stood we, for we, we took the fear away from it we yeah. took the fear out of the equation you know there's so many people that were suffering from AIDS and cancer and mm -hmm. multiple sclerosis and and a plethora of other diseases that could be helped by this and there were so many people that were at the end of their of their pharma rope that you know, all of these drugs, all they were doing was was debilitating them even further, and there was nowhere else to turn. And we got people, uh, even people that didn't agree with cannabis, to go. They're at the end of their lives. Give them some peace. Allow them to smoke cannabis. Give them, you know, which you know I appreciate that, but you know, true compassion shouldn't start at the end of of life. It should it shouldn't be at the end of somebody's. Um, you know, physical ailment. 
it, it really should be available at the very onset. It should be at, at the very moment that there's a diagnosis instead of having to go through the hell of trying to figure out whether Western medicine is going to help them that they should have the ability to get right into cannabis and, and, and utilize a plant that has never killed anybody and has helped millions of people around the globe even before, uh, prop, you know, even before Prop 215, even before uh, the 1937, uh, you know, uh, prohibition on cannabis and hemp. You know, even before that, this was a staple of all things that helped humans. And, and for the first time in 1996, it became a truly compassionate act. And, and we were able to think outside of the monetary ways that we look at cannabis today, uh, especially from a commercial standpoint or uh, from a political standpoint. Politically, our cities, our counties, and our states, they may not agree with cannabis or the fact that we grow it or sell it or transport it or process it. You know, they look at it as like, hey, they've been selling this drug for all of these years. It's time for us to get a piece of it. And they tax the shit out of it at every level. And what's not a tax is a fee. What's not a fee is a permit fee. What if, you know, and, and the bottom line is, is that all the money that is generated in, 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 in cannabis today, a majority of that ends up in the state and the federal government at this point. And the people that are that have fought and given their lives and souls in order to, to have this product become something that was available to us uh, has, has really, you know, we've become the guys on the corner. You know, we're not leading our businesses. We're just the guy out there dealing it. You know, it's like, yo, here you go. And what do you do with the money? You go take it back to the man. You got to take it back over there because they're the ones that are controlling it now. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, we, we have our cannabis businesses and we're required to put in these cameras and tracking and all of that stuff, which is an additional tax on cannabis companies. And, and we're basically paying for our own house incarceration. Well, and then you, know? you can't write off branding and marketing unless you set up an asset management company. They overcomplicate the so, shit out of it. So, so when people tell me that there's cannabis legalization, I say, no, there's paid access. We pay the mob in order to have access to this. And in this case, the mob is our cities. It's our state. So true. It's, it, you know, it, it, is, it is those who think that they're protecting the, 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 the society at large to the point where they have us, you know, like these people that have had incredible afflictions of pain uh, through disease and, 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 and ailment, um, they have uh, tried everything uh, to deal with cancer. And one of the things that helped treat cancer patients uh, and AIDS patients and other, and other people that were taking all these pharma drugs was cannabis. And cannabis was incredibly helpful. It changed everything about how they lived out the rest of their lives or continue to live their lives today. Yet, the fear that we are now obligated to continue because of the narration that is mandated by all of the ways that we operate as cannabis companies is that on all of our products, we have a government warning, just like cigarettes, that the consumption of this product may lead to cancers. But it, it's the product that we use to deal with cancer. You don't, they don't say, hey, smoke some cigarettes because it's going to help you deal with your cancer. They say smoke cannabis, it will help you feel better. You may, you may even, there might even be some help somehow connected to the ingestion of this plant that may actually help treat. 
Look, our politicians don't know what the fuck they're doing. Well, it's it's the thing is is that you know we've had generations of a narrative that has instilled an understanding that we have not figured out a way to acknowledge. And, you know, as we've grown up, even even myself as a kid, you know, you would, you would, you would learn about all of these, these bad things about cannabis or drugs in general. And who was to say they were true, right? And when you invest everything, when you're the government and you invest all of this energy into creating or continuing this narrative of fear around a product like cannabis, when you find out the truth about it and that all of those fears are dismissed when you actually get real education, when you actually have something you can look at and go, oh my God, here's a real document that says exactly the opposite of what I've always learned. And then, as a government, you go, ah, the narrative works for me the way that it is. The war on drug continues because, you know, we're investing hundreds of billions of dollars uh, globally uh, to eradicate this plant that has never killed anybody. But the narrative creates jobs in prisons. It creates jobs in jails. It creates jobs in courts. It creates jobs in treatment centers. It creates jobs... All across, the, all across the world and all across this country to continue a narrative that is false, misleading, and has been a lie since it was created. Well, and look what it's done for our earth. You know, global warming is a thing not be known to people then, but now, now. And when you look at the commercialization of hemp, that greatly reduces the uh, negative carbon. footprint. We're le- yep. Yeah, the carbon footprint we're leaving on our planet. And so... I think people are, are going, okay, shit, we're screwing up our planet. We need to find a new solution. Oh, yeah, we had this one. Well, let's just re-engage it again. We, we kind of know how it works, but well, we don't. I'm, I'm going to tell you a, a, a funny story. When my father wrote this book in 1985, he started uh, giving it out to everybody that became a congressman or a senator. Um, he would send them all copies of the book uh, every time that there was an election. And um, so the book came out in 1985. In 1992, um, the the U.S. Congress, uh, there was a congressman who wanted to know about why is everybody talking about cannabis? Why is everybody talking about industrial hemp and clothing and and food and animal feed and you know all of these things and this this new commercial product? Mm-hmm. And so, if you were a senator, you would you would tell the the Congressional Research Reporting Agency. You'd say, I would like a study done on this so I could better understand what this is and, uh, you know, let me know so I can make a decision for, for my constituents. So the reporting agency, the congressional, it's, you know, the congressional research reporting agency uh, does a study and they provided a, a, a file. And in 1992, it was, it was made and it was given to the senators. But, you know, they only go by the information that they're allowed to have in order to create the summation of what hemp is and how important it really is. So they, they did this report and uh, it basically says, yes, you can use hemp for X, Y, and Z. Um, but you could also use this plant and this plant and this plant. And, and the, the, the equivalency is completely different because these other plants might be able to, com- to do one thing or maybe two things. Right. But hemp 
does everything. It, paper, fiber, fuel, medicine, housing, clothing. You know, uh, what else does every, that? Every, every, what else does that? You know, nothing else does that. You know, <laughs> other plants might do a thing or a couple of things, but none of them do it at the scale. But the report says, yes, you can do it all, but, you know, hemp is illegal and nobody's really interested in doing any infrastructure and there's no commercial benefit for it. You know, the world is never going to accept it. Uh, there's no viability as a commercial product. Uh, it's not going to create jobs. Um, and, and then it goes through and it tells you all of these things. And so, you know, uh, and the, on page two, on the, the last paragraph on page two, it says current uh, situation uh, <laughs> or it says current issue. Uh, and, it, and it says um, there's been a lot of talk of how hemp can save the world, reverse the greenhouse effect, uh, you know, make all of these products from, from hemp, from paper fiber fuel. Uh, and it's all led by one individual and mentions my father by name, Jack Herrer, and who wrote this book, uh, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And, uh, and it goes on to say Jack's summation through this book is that hemp can help reverse the greenhouse effect, create jobs, create wealth, uh, create new industries and new products to help humanity you know, uh, throughout the future. And in the next paragraph, it basically says, yeah, might be true, but it's illegal and the world's never going to embrace it. Now, here we are. What kind of rationale years. is that? We're, we're 28 years down the road. Thailand, two years ago, legalized cannabis and hemp. Germany, Holland have been engaging in industrial hemp products and, and, and production of products uh, for their automobiles for almost the last 20 years. You know, we, we have new industries growing around the world. We have countries, you know, from Africa to South America to England to uh, Eastern Europe to Southeast Asia uh, that are all reconnecting with, with this plant that has been a part of all of our heritage for hmm. millenniums. Heritage? Heritage. <laughs> I love that, man. And God, this is such a great story. And I'm really glad that uh, we got to spend some time together talking a little bit about, uh, I think, not only the misconceptions of cannabis, the origin, and really the story as it came from the illicit market into what is now the legal market or soon to be legal market, depending well, on where you're located. But the, the reality is, is that's really up to us. You know, yeah. Right now, we're so busy trying to figure out how to survive the situations that we're in that we're forgetting that there's still a fight that needs to be had, that our voices are still important, that change still needs to come. We haven't won anything. We have access to something that we can still go to jail for, mm -hmm. that there's the understanding and the reasons why we have access and the access to this are still based on the lies that created the, the problems that we have today. You know, the fact that we have access to this and that there's some financial gains is, is, is small compared to the human cost of, of, of prohibition and this new prohibition 2.0, if you want to call it that. If we well, the jobs that this voices, creates too, like that is, 
that's that's a that's a subject that we haven't even really talked about much, and that's the fact that a lot of the manufacturing we do uh, to support the economy here in the United States comes from China as well as other countries alike, and so uh, this provides us with a wealth of opportunity to create a wealth of opportunities for everyone that lives here on this uh, in this country. Um, which everybody is great. Touches, and it's and it's true because everybody who touches this plant connects to it in a way that is not just a commodity. This this plant this is all about community. The fact that you can commoditize it is a blessing. Yes. You know, the, the we we create our companies uh, that that need services and goods just like any other company. You know, we need we need packaging. We need hardware. We need, we need transit, we need marketing. We, all of these things are all connected to each one of our businesses, whether it's manufacturing or distribution or sales or retail sales. Everything that we do with this plant touches the communities in which we exist. And the community is large, the community is global. When we're buying our packaging right now, we're buying it at, you know, at a reasonable cost, uh, you know, unfortunately from China, uh, but our hardware comes from there. But then there's shipping companies that bring it here. And then there's transport companies that bring it to us. And then there's marketing companies that help us sell our products. And all of these people are employed by the cannabis industry that are paying taxes to the governments and the cities and the states in which we operate. This plant does nothing but lift up communities that embrace its existence in their space, in their, you know, in their state, in, in their country. Mm -hmm. This plant has always given to mankind. It gives us the ability uh, to buy food. It gives and us that's the what's ability scary to for, for politicians is that it gives us so much that, they rely other businesses to give us in order for them to remain in face, right? You know, I think that there's a huge disconnect between, you know, what's right and what's done. Um, and I'm so glad that that's changing because uh, I think a lot of the power is now being placed in our hands is where before we had far less control over what we uh, said and did in terms of how we wanted to live our lives. You know, I, I love the fact that you know, more and more uh, uh, states are coming online. I think Texas uh, has an issue. I don't know if you saw recently, but the commissioner there has a big, big stick up his ass. Um, and even though cannabis is decriminalized, he says they're still arresting people. Um, of course. And, you know, you know, that guy's got to go. Ignorance uh, is, is a horrible thing. And, you know, there's so much information out to the contrary that removes fear from our understanding that allows us uh, to go through life uh, or at least hopefully going forward in life uh, with, with a new respect and a, and a new uh, understanding of what it is that we can do uh, with this plant and how it changes communities. You know, when you, when you think about from the deepest levels of who we are as, as humans, when we... Uh, when we eat together, you know, um, the, the way that we communicate, the way that we show our community uh, to one another is like when, when, you're, when you're out drinking alcohol, you know, you, you, you drink your drink, he drinks or she drinks her drink. When you're smoking cigarettes, you smoke your cigarette, they smoke their cigarette, you know. But cannabis, 
you sm- you roll that joint. You know, it's it's this it's so ritual. ritualistic. It, it is. Exactly. It, yeah. You know, there's this ritual of of rolling this plant that's taken love and and intent to grow it, and you 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 light it and you smoke it, and you you share that experience with the person to your right or the person to your left. You know, and it, it, it is the true essence of what community is. It is like, here we are. This is that the, the term breaking bread. This is, this is who we are as uh, the deepest humanistic levels of, of, of how we should exist on this planet, including how we build our companies. You know, for the first time, we have the ability to build cannabis companies and industries that are based on what it is that, that, that gave us the, you know, this opportunity and it's being subverted to some degree, you know, because we need all of this money to, to come in in order to build these companies. But the ideas are for the first time we can create this industry in our own image without having to go to, Oh, look at this, you know, big industries coming Mm -hmm. and it's, and it's screwing things up and people, you know, they have to sell their dreams to somebody else because they can't afford to to run their own businesses anymore. So they sell an interest in their business or they sell half of it or they sell all of it and they exit because now it's not cannabis. It's not about the community anymore. Now it's just about commodity. And, and, and we're getting away from, you know, from the understanding that this industry can still be made in our image and our understanding from our community. And our community is not just me and you. It's not just what's happening in Seattle or California. It's what's happening around us. And we can, you know, we can still have that hippie handshake in a sense and, and be able to do business in a way that's honorable. You know, there's so many people that I know that, you know, they feel almost dirty doing business uh, in the legal market because it's so opposite of what this plant is at a community level, you know, how it feeds, how it helps, how it grows. And, you know, we need to make sure that as we move forward as, as a community, as an industry, uh, as you know, this new opportunity continues to present itself and its opportunities that that we remember that it's always community first. And the fact that we can commoditize it is a blessing. And mm-hmm. if, if we treat it that way, then, then the way that we do business together, the way that one business honors another, whether it's a packaging company, a processing company, you know, somebody who makes your extracts, somebody who, 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 who grows your flower, you know, that all of these people, they do it with an intention. And that intention is what makes it so fucking special. It's what makes this plant what it is and how it touches the souls of all of those who come in contact with it. Because the ones that don't come in contact with it, all they want to do is sell it, take the money and put it in their bank. It's all ones and zeros to them. But the ones that grow it, the ones that come in contact with it, the ones that embrace what it is and the intent of, of, of what it brings, you know, uh, they're the life soul of this industry, this community, you know, and, and we need to remember that that is the most important things because without it, this plant loses its soul. No question. And, and we are its protector as it has in, you know, from a reciprocal standpoint, it being consumed into our bodies is our protector. 
I love that. And, and this isn't a derail of what you're saying, but directly in line, you know, I, I got this tattoo. I don't know if you can see it, but, um, <laughs> the, one, the, the one that starts at your shoulder or the one that's down by your wrist, uh, the one that goes all the way, <laughs> all the way. So, uh, I've got Medusa, I've got Medusa up here and Medusa, I don't know if you know the story that, but she was, she was made, she was cast away by the gods and made to look ugly where she was once beautiful. She found out her husband was cheating on her and she went to call him out to the higher power. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, because, the, uh, because the higher power be, you know, Zeus, they sided with Poseidon, her husband. And so she was cast to a cave where um, everyone that looked at her or she looked at would turn to stone or get stoned. So I thought that was kind of fun. So you look at the carnage of everyone and then the eagle. So the way she, what she represents to me in retrospect to the cannabis industry is that the industry is made to look ugly based on a lie, right? And this is the carnage uh, that you see as the story unfolds. And we've got the eagle here, which to us in the, here in the U S is a symbol of freedom. And so it's attacking the snake by flying as close to the fire as possible, knowing that that's the danger zone, but hell worth the risk anyways. So, uh, and then of course I've got pot leaves all over my arm, but my point being is like, you couldn't be more right. This is, this is something that much like yourself, I also live, uh, die and breathe for. Um, I haven't died, but a lot of people have, and I'm here to certainly support um, the loss that we've had in order to get where we're at today. You know, um, um, and, father included. And and and, it, and it, the loss is so much deeper than that. Like, you know, going back to props, you know, uh, two fifteen and prop sixty four, and and the different narratives that have gone uh, with each one of them. And one of the one of the things that was that was touted in prop sixty four is that prop prisoners would be set free once this initiative passed and, you know, but I haven't seen a, 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 an outpouring of, of folks coming out of prisons. It seems to be very, very slow. And, and yet here I, here I am, here we are in this, in this new developing industry that, that we're selling this in retail stores around the country, around this state, around your state. We have access to this plant, the same plant that is now considered uh, 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 a, an essential business to the, po- to the point where, you know, all these other businesses sh- shut down, you know, bars shut down, cannabis dispensaries open, you know, but the people that went to jail before this became a law are still there. There are still people serving for access that I freely have for the most part right now. I'm producing. Why don't you light product. one up? <laughs> Celebrate you know. your freedom right now. <laughs> Let's have a little quick sesh. And then uh, I know we're going to wrap from there. But, man, this has been a great conversation so far. Probably one of our best. My turn. Here's to you, Dad. To you, Jack. And Dennis. And every other fallen soldier helping support and fight for the industry every day that we get to, you, you know, know, live in uh, today. But it, it, it's really astonishing to me 
that I have the ability to to produce a product by this name without the fear of of Hallelujah. what so many are still paying the price for. Well, and, thank God and Steve and D'Angelo's there. Well, help. you know, the last prisoner project with Steve D'Angelo family and friends in this community is doing an extraordinary job. But you know, they can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. And it can't be done without acknowledging and understanding the truth of cannabis. Mm-hmm. If we don't continue to educate folks, if we don't continue to break down these walls of ignorance or even worse, um, you know, willful ignorance, people who know that this plant is not dangerous, but cannot break away from the ideology that they grew up with because understanding that that what they learned and what they've been fighting about all of these years was all based on a lie it's it's almost too much to comprehend so it's easier to continue to embrace that lie than than come to a new realization and this willful ignorance is what's causing such devastation within this community within its understanding you know 2 years ago we legalized you know the the, the hemp bill the farm bill Thanks, Richard Nixon you know but but we, 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 we passed the farm bill, which legalized hemp. And then at, and at the same time, the different states that had hemp or wanted to have hemp started creating regulations that were still based in the same fears that they put into cannabis. Now, I look at it all as the same plant, you know? And so the continuation of this fear the, 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 is just, um, it's just, it, well, and it's also complex. I mean, when you look at just the branding and marketing side, you know, and we've had many conversations, Dan, about this, you try to categorize uh, a product that's in three market segments. Well, really four, you've got, you know, commercialization, right. Of, of products that live outside of consumables that then have their own subsectors, which is medical wellness and recreational. Right. Yeah. Different so, levels of fear. Right. Well, the elder, the elderly don't fear CBD, so they consume it. Well, what sucks is it took us. We could have started this so many years ago and been so much further ahead in how we operate as a society on all levels in all countries, uh, because we would have had you know hundreds of years. I mean, I was reading an article. In Israel, over 400 years ago, they found like frankincense and uh, um, THC residue next to um, next to mummified remains. Yes, and I mean, I watch enough, uh, you know, ancient alien episodes with my roommate. Um, I've seen so many, more than I can care to count. Um, and he's so fascinated in uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, as they relate to things happening now and in the past. And it's extremely fascinating to understand more personally, having spent time with them, researching things alongside him, that perhaps societies uh, back during the Egyptian era, you know, were far, far, far more advanced than we are today. And that uh, a lot of the advancements that we once had then were lost when uh, there was, uh, you know, this global catastrophe uh, or however you want to call it. Um, 
But was all of that information lost? Dun, 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 who knows? Perhaps there's still a lot that we've found, um, but because it's so hard to control the outcome of what people will think and act based on the information, will that create and arise fear? Will people who have this belief in Christianity and Catholicism and all of these different things, will that become a thing of the past? Because then we're all, uh, I mean, look, I could get down a rabbit hole, but we all go down them occasionally. I know, I know. And then we just smoke too. So of course that's where my brain goes a bit, but um, also remember the rabbit hole. Don't go down the rabbit hole of, you know, the highest THC wins. Um, you know, for, for all of you uh, out there uh, who are always looking for the highest THC, you know, 27%, eight, you know, 28%, 32%. Um, when, you, when you look at cannabis, you know, you could, you could have a, a cannabis, uh, you know, uh, indica at 25% and a sativa indica at 25%. But, you know, if, if all things are equal, what is it that makes them different? It's the terpene profile. Yep. So, you know, when you look at what the experience of cannabis is, you want to make sure that your terpene profile is on point. Well, and, and so something even at 16 or 18% with a high terpene profile will take you to a destination that you will not expect. And so there's a lot of understanding uh, on cannabis that we still need uh, yet to understand. Well, I, I love where you're going with that. And just so we're all talking about, the truth behind the truth. We also have to recognize that one of the reasons why physicians today can't recommend cannabis uh, uh, and the full spectrum plant is because there are very few methods in which you're able to decarboxylate cannabis and still maintain 100% of the plant's original profile. So Mind you, when you decarb cannabis, that's to burn. I know that you know this, Dan, but for everyone who doesn't know what decarb means, it means to heat cannabis. You're heating up the molecules. You're activating the THC. So when you do that, you actually could be losing about 70% to 80% of the plant's original profile. So uh, there are technologies out there that exist, and I will have the founder and CEO of um, Harvest Direct, uh, the Lacey technology uh, on my podcast in the future. But um, regardless, you know, we want to ensure that we're providing the truth behind the experience as it relates to the medicinal, wellness, and recreational benefits. Yep. To your point, that 30% uh, terpene profile, cannabinoid profile that you're going to achieve is still enough to have an experience nonetheless. Yeah. Um, when we can smoke cannabis and still obtain 100% of that profile, it's then that will unlock, I think, the true power of cannabis. Um, but because there are uh, only very few ways, like the Lacey machine, that allow you to uh, obtain that, the efficacy of the plant to its true form, that's when physicians can start making those types of recommendations. However, there are, of course, and that's, and that's based on solving very, very specific niche problems, not, not larger problems that are uh, obtainable through um, cannabis and CBD in combination, period. But right. like when you look at uh, Trainwreck, that strain profile is very similar to that of an Adderall. If 
you're able to obtain, a, you know, 95 to 100% of the plant's original profile, it can eliminate the need for Adderall. So, I'm looking at those types of things as it relates to how physicians and doctors alike can make recommendations based on strain specificity. Because as in the tradition... But things have to be repeatable. And that, that's the problem in the, in the, the U.S. pharmacopoeia. And, well, and, there, and the there are... To have it repeatable, repeatable, repeatable. You know, every day you know exactly this. And the, well, the thing Renee that we're Gagnon, talking- though, Renee Gagnon in, out of Canada... She's created um, these growing pods that because they're smaller, they're more controlled, which means the consistency that you can create utilizing the same strain can be much easier to manage because you're not, there aren't as many um, variables, variables, right? And so trust me, when you could, when you combine all of these things, you can create pharmaceutical grade products that can compete with the pharmaceutical and nutraceutical market um, and and still be, well, as it sits today, it's a recreational product where you don't need to have anything but a license to grab it. There's, there's not enough understanding and it's going to take a long time to get to that point. But as, as long as we keep messing with it um, and as long as we keep trying to educate folks moving forward, um, we'll eventually find it you know, uh, our way, or it'll find its way. Uh, it may not be in our lifetime. Uh, it may, and certainly not going to be in mine, uh, you know, but, uh, it's coming, you know, but yep. young, young guys like yourself, uh, you know, hey, how, how old do you think I am? <laughs> I'm 37. I'm yeah. young, but I'm getting, I'm getting there. I've got, I've got a bed of grays. I understand. No, I, uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm 50, you look good. I'm 58 this year. You look good. So, you know, um, you know, when my father wrote the book in 1985, he thought that cannabis would be, you know, that would, you know, would be legalized within the next two or three years because people would have the truth. People for the first time would have the truth in cannabis and it would, and it would be legal. Now here we are, you know, 35 years later and we're still talking about educating people uh, and we're still trying to make, uh, access uh, based on based on the truth, and the truth is hard to find, and and so there's a lot of work to do just in understanding it to the point of, of people accepting it. Uh, getting to the point where people can use it as a medicine uh, is probably a couple of further steps down the road, and uh, the quicker that we continue to educate, uh, you know, the the community at large, and that means people outside of the cannabis community directly and start teaching it in schools and start running, you know, college courses on, on history, not just THC. I mean, you know, they can, they can work on that in science class, but, you know, removing uh, the fear and creating the understanding of history as it applies to us today, because, you know, what it is that was, you know, that we understood, you know, 200 years ago applies directly to what needs to happen today. Sure. And so, so history does paint the, the future for us. It's not irrelevant. It is, it is as true as, as anything uh, that we know. And, and just, you know, I, I don't want to say a quick plug, but this. Well, that's on Amazon now, right? This, this is on Amazon now. Uh, uh, it's been on Amazon. You've been able to buy older prints. But uh, now. The digital version. Um, you can go to uh, those, those that, 
that uh, have Kindle uh, or, you know, and Kindle can be downloaded on any device uh, or, excuse me, any device, um, whether it's a Samsung phone or an iPhone or a laptop or your desktop. Uh, you can download the Kindle app. Uh, you can download this book in an interactive version. So as you're reading about the original book that my father wrote, all of that text is in black. And then there's hyperlinks throughout the book that you click on the hyperlink and it'll take you to new stories and new understanding and new documentation. It'll also take you to videos. So if you want to have an understanding uh, of, of uh, you know, who was Jack Herrer, uh, you, can, you can click in the, in the earlier pages, you can click on that link and, and actually watch a 58-minute documentary that was made in 1999. Uh, if you want to know about Hemp for Victory that we talked about earlier, you can click on the hyperlink in that story, in that chapter, and it'll take you to the 14-minute video that the U.S. government made, put out for the war effort, and then after the war denied that they ever made it, um, and all of the documentation that went along with it. Um, so, so this book is available uh, both in digital uh, and you can also order brand new printed copies uh, for thirty nine, uh, excuse me, thirty four ninety five. But the digital copy is only nine ninety nine, nine ninety nine, and you can carry it anywhere and everywhere you go. Uh, you you can read about history while you're traveling, while you're sitting. Uh, while you're trying to educate yourself, uh, you know, within this space uh, as, as a consumer of cannabis or somebody who's just interested in understanding why is this plant becoming such a global phenomenon, which we already know it's not a, it's not a global phenomenon. It's just being re-embraced mm -hmm. uh, for what it is. And that is, you know, w one of the greatest servants to mankind and this planet that we've ever known. Yep. Yep. You know? well, no question there. Well, man, that was uh, quite a download of information. So I, uh, brother, thanks again for coming on to my podcast and, and dropping the wisdom um, and sharing the love and the passion. And uh, I appreciate you and I appreciate our friendship. And I'm glad we've got, uh, you know, this opportunity to dig deeper into, you know, what makes you, you and, you know, where your heritage comes from. Um, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at uh, the jackcoverfoundation.org. Um, and, uh, you know, you can find uh, this, this brand uh, here in California and soon in Nevada uh, and other states um, under the original Jack Cover because there's only one. There is. And anything else that might have my father's name on it uh, is just not. It doesn't represent this family uh, in the way that uh, it should. Yep. All right, brother. Much love. Jared. Appreciate brother, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. You uh, bet, bro, bro. Many blessings. You too.